Alright, I didn't say it before, I gotta say it now. The snow is melted. I don't see one little iota, little smidgen, little piece of it right now. Which means mud season's here already. I don't like mud season in March before my birthday. That does not make me happy. But it is what it is. Alright folks, welcome to, I guess this will be March, early April. Uh, we have spent about 45 minutes talking to our current guest. This is going to be part two. We talked about the business side of it. Uh, but first, let's talk about a little bit about the spring. Let's make sure it's mud season. And I know there's a lot of craziness going on in the world, but one of the things we can do is still get out into the woods and enjoy that fresh air. Suck it in. Enjoy the cannabis plant. Take it in in any way you can that works for your body because that is something that does not kill. It does not uh, it does not inspire the spread of bacteria or germs or anything. Cannabis is that plant that has lasted for thousands of years through any pandemic that ever happened on this planet. It has been there for everybody. And if you can't get your opioids, you know what the alternative is. Mm -hmm. Find that cannabinoid that works for you because if you can't get to that pharmacy, there is a way to relieve your pain without that stupid pill. All right. So who we have with us today is the bright energetic, athletic, former pharmaceutical rep, Courtney Colley. Hello, hello. Thank you for continuing with us, Courtney. We appreciate it. I know how busy you are. Um, we have mutual interests, so we've been around each other at industry events, some work stuff, um, and we didn't talk about the most exciting part of what's going on with you and your husband right now, and I'm very intrigued of how this all came about, this company, uh, and you guys now currently, if I'm not mistaken, have a New York grow and processing licenses here. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, so, all right, I'm skipping a step. First of all, we talked about Courtney, how she went to, she's from Brockport, Hamlin area. We went to Brockport, volleyball player, ultra trail runner. Uh, way better shape than, than I am. And I think she's athletically probably a little bit better than I am that way. So I will give her her kudos because I have never wanting to do any kind of race that long. And I do not want to run up and down Letchworth Park that many times, I can tell you that. Um, but she went to Uville College, which I hope I said it right. Uh, she got International Studies Master's Degree. Is that yes. correct? Uh, and then after that, what did you end up doing for your career? Was it one of those things where you had to piecemeal some jobs and then to get what uh, a nice uh, steady career? How did this play out? Uh, well, after school, I moved home to Brockport, to my parents' house, to the, the room I grew up in where my little brothers were still going to high school and I shared a bathroom with them. So that was great. Oh, perfect. Did you still have your uh, new kids on the block poster, posters <laughs> yep, on the wall? all of it. <laughs> it was all still up. Yep. So I was a very serious professional right away. Um, no, I, you know, started my job search. Uh, didn't, didn't really have anything specific in mind. You know, we all go to school, get our degrees. Some people know exactly what they want to do. I didn't. So I just started putting myself out there and I was recruited by Cardinal Health to be a sales rep for their pharmaceutical distribution business to hospitals. So basically what that means is Cardinal Health is one of three big distributors of all the pharmaceuticals that hospitals and pharmacies need. And so when a hospital contracts with Cardinal, we need to make sure that we can get them all of the medicines they need 
they usually get six or seven day delivery from us. So daily deliveries, making sure we have in stock the medicines that they're going through, help them with logistics on how to efficiently get those medications up to their patient floors. And my territory was Western New York. So Buffalo to about the Finger Lakes and down into Pennsylvania a little bit. This is really interesting. I didn't realize that, that was um, kind of the role. So, so I, I got a ton of questions. I hope you don't mind. Of course. Uh, I, I'm very intrigued about the health system in many different countries. I've been reading more about Canada and Italy. Um, so ours itself, I find it intriguing that a private company is helping kind of set up the delivery of the medications through the hospital. Tell me a little about how that works. Is that through a software program or? Yeah. Yeah. So um, at Cardinal, there were a couple of different um, products and services basically that we could offer to a hospital. The, the world I lived in for a little while, I was safety and logistics manager for the entire East region. And I would go to hospitals and what I would do is I would look in their pharmacy and watch the process of when a pharmacy tech takes a medication off the shelf, out of the inventory system, packages it up to go up to a certain unit, pharmacist has to check it, and then someone has to transport it upstairs. And so what you see is a lot of touches, a lot of inefficiencies, chances for error, human error. So we tried to automate that process and skip that brick and mortar basement pharmacy of the hospital altogether and ship them medications that were ready to go straight up to the floor. So you're talking about pre-packaging medications. Yep. More, right? Yep, yep. We had a, a GMP facility that would take, say, um, some unit dose tablets, and maybe the unit, the third wing of Rochester General, needed only 30 of those, and they come in a box of 100. So we would pre-package them in smaller units of sale, and that way they come in with a barcode and a smaller unit of sale and go straight up to that patient unit and be ready to be stocked in their inventory, either their inventory room or if they had an automated machine for inventory. And that way the pharmacy could focus on other things than just pick, pack and ship. So that would give the pharmacy more time to work like almost as an alchemist pharmacy with that has to break down medications that have to be more specific, right? Because you're talking about more of the generalized dosing and, and medications, right? Through that process. Yeah, exactly. And we, we call that usually clinical pharmacy. So a lot of times you have patients that come into the hospital that need a medication or a treatment that's not just available commercially. So the pharmacist might have to mix something or dose something specific or look over a patient's care plan and see what's best for them. When you have a pharmacist who's kind of working under the level of their potential and really what they're doing is just, you know, transactional, looking at a medication, sending it upstairs, that, that's not really a good use of their time. You want them really working on the clinical side of pharmacy. So what we tried to do is automate as many of those manual processes as we could. <sighs> Man, I, I have so many questions. It's like one's go. No, don't ask that. Ask this. Ask this, Brian. No. Um, I used to deliver flowers to hospitals, right? It's so stupid and mundane, I know. But I'm just thinking about how working with those candy stripers was just a pain in the butt to try and coordinate that. To I'm thinking about this. So, right, the first thing that came to my head when you're telling me how the delivery was per floor and all that is, how can that happen? There's different patients every week, so there's different needs of patients. Um, so how quick these systems have to be a little bit um, 
quick moving as far as needs, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it has to be fast. It can't be like it's a standard for six months, the same for every floor, every department, right? Right. Yeah. That's where the, the low unit of measure comes in. So, and the fact that we can deliver six days or even seven days a week, the hospital doesn't have to stock so much. And then you can kind of move on a dime. So in most cases, a hospital up on their floor will have a machine, an automated dispensing machine of um, there's a couple different brands of them out there and they are fingerprint usually technology so the nurse comes gives their fingerprint puts um, or chooses which patient on the screen they're picking up a medication for and the appropriate drawer opens and they take it out so those drawers obviously won't hold very bulky products or high quantities but you want a low unit of measure stock just in time to those floors so there's usually twice daily delivery from the pharmacy up to those floors to replenish. So it's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of moving parts. But what we helped with is trending seasonally, which uh, medications they went through, which ones are fast movers, maybe which ones are high dollar and we don't want to stock so much of if they're going to outdate in those machines. So there's a lot around par level management, inventory management. Did you expect that when you got into the industry that it was that detailed? Did you I knew nothing about it. <laughs> when I got when I got my job as a distribution rep, you know, I was given a map of Western New York and told, go visit with every hospital. These are going to be your accounts. Some we have, some we don't. Take good care of them. And I just remember going in and saying, I don't know anything, but I'll take your question back and find out. And that's how it was. And the t- hospitals were telling her that. That's crazy. Talk yeah. about tenuous. <laughs> there are some that were less tolerant than others. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, because you're talking about they want to see that you're coming in with knowledge because you're going to come in and maybe change SOPs and function within their hospital. Yes. And if your first thing is, I don't know, they're like, who did they just send me? Mm-hmm. Fake it till you make it. Wow. That had been, so I'm sure the way you are, it took you one month to figure out the whole system. <laughs> Not quite, but... Um, the, the gist of it, right? So so you could go into meetings then and understand some, some of the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. What was the most difficult situation that you came through as a rep that you had to help solve? Was, it, was there one that you're like proud to say, you know, we saw this and I was part of fixing it? Yeah. So I remember um, Niagara Falls Memorial Hospital was one of our accounts and they had someone come in with a venomous steak bite. And no one keeps the anti-venom for snake bites for this particular one in stock. It's extremely expensive and rare in Niagara Falls. Who would have expected that? Um, so I remember we had to coordinate with our distribution center in Syracuse, to, and, and I believe we had it in stock. So we had to get it to Niagara Falls Memorial as fast as possible. So we arranged it with the state trooper, and they drove it at 100 miles an hour out to Niagara Falls from Syracuse for us to get it to this patient. That is so cool. I never would have thought that your company would have like taken on law enforcement and say, hey, we need, we have mm-hmm. a medical emergency. Now, is there a direct line and like an SOP in-house for you guys to handle that? Like, do you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So like when the throughway shut down for weather or different events, um, we're one of those companies that their trucks, their tractor trailer trucks are allowed to get on the throughway. And sometimes we get a, a trooper escort. Because hospitals still need medications, whether we have a snowstorm or not, they still have patients. So we are a critical business to keep the healthcare system running. And is all of your um, trucks on the road just plain white, not labeled? Like I've never seen the logos of any of these, right? So I imagine that's in per- on purpose. Yeah, all you will see Cardinal Health trucks out on the road. Those are our medical side of the business, your gowns, your masks, your gloves, but all the pharmaceutical trucks 
are discrete. Yeah, that makes sense. I've never seen one on the road now that you mention it. And you talk about three different distributors. Normally in any other business, I could tell you, oh yeah, I've seen that truck on the road. I've driven millions of miles, but I've never seen one of the pharmaceutical rep. It's a giant company that's very little known. I didn't even know it existed when I got the job there. Who are the two primary competitors of Cardinal? Uh, McKesson and Amerisource Bergen. Okay, so I've heard of McKesson. Interesting. So you guys had Western New York. How many of the hospitals do you think you, you um, handled here, or had accounts that you worked with? Just curious. Um, oops, sorry. Uh, I think it was 25 separate hospitals. That's a lot. Yeah. Was everyone very unique in their needs? Um, not especially. No, um, it, you know, it kind of depends on what departments that hospital has and what they specialize in. But for the most part, you see the same, you know, skews flowing through. Everything just becomes a widget and you uh, you just kind of manage with what what you see on the trend charts. And, and that helps with the systems itself. So the system itself, I'm now I'm less worried about the complications of the system because it, it really, it looks the same all across. So it's not like you have one hospital, you have a really seriously different system. Like for instance... Here in Rochester, Rochester General is known as the heart hospital. So I don't know if, you know, because that's a heart hospital, if you end up setting up a different type of system from the U of R, which is more of a cancer children's hospital, maybe not heart specialists, right? Some mm -hmm. hospitals specialize. So that's why I was curious of that. Um, have you ever, have you compared our system with Canada or, or have you had experience like seeing the difference of the way how they do it versus here? I have not. No. Just curious. Because uh, we've been comparing how they do the cannabis industry up there versus here. So I, I wasn't sure if you did that with the pharmaceutical side. No, no, never crossed over the border. So uh, how many years did you spend in the pharma pharmaceutical industry? I was over there for 12 years. That's a long time. Yes. Did you leave with a good taste in your mouth, bad taste in your mouth? What, how, how did you leave there as far as like seeing the industry? And Yeah, I, I mean, I left with a good taste in my mouth. I feel like the time that I left, it was just the right time. Um, I got to do a lot of different roles over there. Um, my last role was in consulting with pharmacies and hospitals around the country on Lean Six Sigma process improvement. So that gave me the chance to see all kinds of supply chains and different businesses in healthcare. But like a lot of healthcare businesses right now, they're getting hit pretty hard. And so something like a Lean Six Sigma consulting group in this giant company that's a pick, pack, and ship company, they started looking at their different departments and saying, you know, is this our core competency? Should we be focusing efforts here or should we be working on our core business? Uh, Lean Six Sigma, do you want to explain a little bit what that is for people? I, I got certified through the Postal Service, so I, I went through a, a couple of steps of the training, I think the two belts, first two belts. But explain a little bit what Lean Six Sigma is for people, why it's so important in industry to use it. Yep. So Lean Six Sigma is really a joining of two things. There's Lean Methodologies and um, there's Six Sigma. So Lean is process improvement and it's really just waste elimination. So you could go anywhere. You could go into Wegmans and see waste. Waste is anything from people waiting, seeing inventory built up, um, overproduction, all kinds of areas of waste. I could go through them all. Mm -hmm. But um, no, go, uh, for people, they, they need to understand this. It's like it's almost like there's a, a place for everything and everything in this place. Mm -hmm. It is very specific when you go in a building. And, and, so describe this to people because because. 
it's very difficult for, I believe, business is tenuous. I was a sales rep for the post office the last three years, and I saw most every business I went into could use a Lean Six Sigma and probably saved money and been more efficient within month within a month or two. So, so okay. don't don't hesitate. Go on. Yeah, yeah, let's these dive in. Yeah. So, uh, Cardinal's program for Lean Six Sigma is to place a person into a warehouse. So, I commuted to the Syracuse Distribution Center for two years, and I was the on-site Lean Six Sigma specialist black belt. And so, for a facility that ships out all of the pharmaceutical needs for New York State and part of Pennsylvania, we had about forty percent of the market share at that time. So. There was a lot of pieces, a lot of moving pieces. You have inventory coming in each day. We have to stock it on the shelf. And then at night, we have a night shift that comes and picks medications off the shelf and gets them in trucks to go out to hospitals in the morning. And so my role there was to organize, train, coach other people in the operation on what Lean Six Sigma was. And then I would run projects. So if you just picture a giant warehouse, you know, you bring a team of people in and you, you watch a process. You go to the Gemba where the work is happening. You stand out on the floor and you just watch and you see how the process flow happens. And there's an Take lots of notes. Yes, lots of notes, like, pictures. Like crazy notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what you do is you go back and you process map it and you, you take a look at the entire process. Um, we use the term TRIMWOOD. It's an acronym for the waste, the eight waste. So you have transportation waste and Anytime you see someone transporting something back and forth or an exceptionally long amount of distance or time spent transporting, you have to stop and, and call it out as waste. And then the next step would be brainstorming ideas to eliminate or reduce that waste. Uh, resources, either human resources, it could be equipment, misused resources. Uh, the I stands for inventory. So anytime you see a buildup of inventory, that's really where you want to focus in on a, a process. When you see inventory building up, we call that a bottleneck. Um, T-R-I-M. M is motion. So different from transportation because it's physical motion, ergonomics. So if I was constantly having to bend over, pick up something off the ground, to do my work all day long, that is painful on the body, but also a waste of time. So you look for unnecessary motion. Uh, waiting, W is waiting. Pretty easy to understand that one, but if you see someone waiting on another step in the process, then you definitely wanna understand why are you waiting and why isn't there a flow to this process. Um, the first O is overproduction. So overproduction means you're producing more than the customer is willing to pay for. So if I ordered 10 stickers from you and you sent me 20 and I didn't have any use for the 20, that's overproduction. And it's all kinds of waste because now I have to transport those back to you. It's a misuse of our time, yada, 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 completely waste. But, um, we always say whenever you see overproduction, that's the worst of them all. If you're producing more than is needed at that time, it is a waste. But a lot of people do it. They feel more comfortable having more inventory on hand. Uh, overprocessing. And, and that's because people will make excuses like, well, if when it does, when we do get that spike or that anticipated that it's there and they're not behind in production, right? Like exactly. that's a it's a catch 22. Like it's not as easy as just. It is. Yep. Yep. But the whole idea is to build a process that you can easily produce something and that you're not, you don't have a backlog. So one piece flow is what we always say, not batching. Uh, the second O is overprocessing. So if I asked you for a two inch sticker, I'm always saying sticker because I have this cool <laughs> Templetic podcast sticker right in front of me. She's so um, good. <laughs> 
So if I asked you for a two-inch sticker and then you gave me a four-inch one, well, that's over-processed. I didn't need all that. And then lastly, trim wood defects. Anytime a defect happens, an error occurs, maybe the label's printed wrong, <laughs> that one I know about, um, a defect leads to waste, right? Whenever you get an error in the process, you have to rework and do it all. So that was a very long explanation, but that really explains lean. So lean is eliminating waste, and there's a lot of different tools like 5S that you can use to do that. Mm -hmm. On the Six Sigma side, it's much more statistically driven. You're running pilots, you're doing data analysis, you're taking you know, um, data in, running normality tests and standard deviations and understanding how the process performs today and what is the right amount that you can improve it within reason, all of that nerdy, nerdy statistical stuff. But you bring the two together and you can run a common sense project with data behind it. That's right. And you usually bring people from both sides of that into a room together. And mm -hmm. you usually have whiteboards and, and you're collaborating with all these pictures and all this information up. And the solution almost presents itself in a lot of these situations, right? It's, it's yeah. not like you have to persuade. You go into a room and you go into a company and you try and do a Lean Six Sigma. Going to post office, people don't want to change anything. So no. that was my experience, right? And you going into these, they think their process is the best. Like they think you're going to change to them when you get there. And actually, you know, you're changing something significant that they thought they did perfectly. Mm -hmm. And they would get that, get them on board and, and showing your value, it, sometimes, luckily, it presents itself, right, through the data. Yeah, the hardest part is is employee, winning employees over, getting them to understand, getting people to change. The it's tough. Yep. The buy-in. The buy-in. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so so I'm painting this big picture for people, and the reason why I wanted you to go into that detail is because I, I want people to understand the type of people that are in the, the industry we're going to talk about next here in New York and how really people are seriously and have great experiences. So you, you've been in medical facilities. You've been GMP facilities. You understand the basis of that. Um, you understand the pharmaceutical industry. You understand how it's impacted um, us on a positive and negative basis. Uh, because I would, to be very honest, I was thinking pharmaceutical only in a negative basis, mm -hmm. um, only because I feel like uh, oh, they're profit driven, right? But I really didn't give enough thought to the process of how they really are helping making sure the delivery of medications happens in this country on a daily basis. Because I've done a lot of research on if a major catastrophe hit on this planet, you know what what side effects are going to happen? What society effects? And and one of the things. I always said is if power happens to go out for some reason on this planet, within four days, hospitals are done. They do not have the supplies or the backup generators or the gas to go for more than four days. So if anybody's on life support and they're in a hospital for four days and there's no power in that area in four days, you either have to evacuate that person or they're probably dying. Unfortunately, that's a reality. And I love hearing how the system is set up, but I'm also a little bit worried because I feel like medications are out there on a daily basis. So you're delivering six days, seven days a week. So does that really mean there's not a backup of supplies in some of these hospitals? No, I, there definitely are. And I think in this day and age, every single hospital has a pandemic preparedness plan or emergency preparedness plan. Because I remember even when I was a rep, 
this is going back 13 years now when I started, they would ask for our help. What should we keep in stock? How much? And so that was something that we helped develop with the hospitals. But they usually put those in a separate room and specifically don't touch those. It's almost like a lock, uh, a safe. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the extra overflow. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring out because yep. I had a feeling they had that. Yeah, yeah. and I, I bet you right now it's probably doubled or quadrupled. Just it has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So you came out of the front. Now, obviously, that was a good job. You were you were doing well financially, I'm sure. Um, you were traveling. Uh, I, I understand how important that role is and how every project is a new project. So it kept you fresh, right? Yes. Uh, but then you take on a, now a new role in new company. So, so tell me a little bit how you transferred from transition, excuse me, from there to what you're doing now and tell everybody what you are doing now, please. Sure. So now I am working with Agricultural Development Services. So my husband, Josh, has been in the business for about 12 years now. He's a certified crop advisor, so an agronomist. And this business um, was started by Josh's stepdad and mom. And they have been consulting and working with farms for over 30 years now through the legacy businesses. So they do everything from crop consulting to what technology a farm might need, supply chain management on large production projects, all different areas of um, the agricultural field. And uh, let's see, last January, we took a trip out to Oregon to visit a uh, processing facility and a large hemp grower in Oregon. And at that point, um, we had already had, well, Agricultural Development Services, we call ADS, already had their hemp growers license and a processor's license. And the last couple of years, um, the business had done a few hundred acres each year. But this was the first big year where they were looking into CBD, hemp for CBD, and um, how that was going to be expanding in the market. And so after that site visit out to Oregon, we came back. And I remember Josh and I talking it over a lot and saying, we really think we should go for this. And so I remember coming to his parents one day and saying, I'm on board. Like, I want to be in this. I want to be a part of this. And we started building a plan together to uh, plant over 1,500 acres here in New York. And at that time, it just was coincidentally, um, you know, Cardinal was going through some tough times with the opioid crisis and having to reevaluate. So the timing for me to leave Cardinal and to move over to hemp was perfect for me. And, um, you know, I went for it. Was it scary? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one trip and all of a sudden you're thinking about changing a career. That gets crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, going from a cushy corporate job, you know, all the benefits you can imagine. But I've always had a dream to work with Josh and and to work on something that's, I think, for the better of our planet. So, like, there is that feeling behind working in hemp that makes you makes you appreciate what you're doing a lot more. And I loved what I did at Cardinal, and I know I made an impact on a lot of lives, but... Um, When we talk about the opioid crisis and the fact that a lot of companies are implicated in that for playing a role, and you think about just how many people are on opioids and that hemp and CBD and the other cannabinoids can be an alternative to opioids, you know, it it changes the way you think and it really had changed my outlook on what I want for my career. 
that's crazy because a lot of people can think about the values and morals in their life, but to apply them with changing careers, and I know I did. I changed um, what I'm doing because of it, um, and I don't regret a piece of it. My life is probably a little harder now than it was, um, it, it, but I don't regret one second of it because I know that at the end of the day, being a part of this industry is going to help people health-wise for a long time. Yep. I believe that too. When did you come to that re- revelation? Um, I would say it was about this time last year, early 2019. And it wasn't like an aha moment. Obviously, I've been having those feelings for some time and the opioid crisis had been happening for some time. And just me intrinsically always just had a vision that I would maybe work for something bigger, work for myself, um, work for the greater good, even maybe work for a nonprofit. Just, you know, what I pictured for myself. And I thought, you know, I'm doing great things for people right now, but I was always kind of holding out for the opportunity to kind of do something bigger in my mind. And you came back from a trip. Josh's parents said you guys are loony. Did you guys put any kind of dollar figure on it or what happened next? Like, was, was there some market research done or what did you guys do next? Yeah, so, you know, it's really the four of us that when we decided to, to go for this, um, we just started contacting the farms within our network. We spoke with our um, partners, consultants from Oregon, and, uh, you know, we just went for it. We came up with the number. I don't even... I don't even know if I can say how we came up with that number of acres, but, you know, we, we started small and we said, okay, we could either do number one, number two, or number three. I remember writing it down on a napkin actually once at dinner and we went for number three, the biggest one. Right, go big or go home. Yeah. Um, so the name of the company you guys put together? Yep. So our brand is American Hemp Project and American Hemp Project encompasses everything that is a direct result of ADS's supply chain management. So ADS manages the grow and the crop and the supply chain. And American Hemp is the brand that is going to be selling, distributing, marketing, consulting, all of those things. How'd you guys come up with the name? I love it. Josh came up with it. I don't, I just popped into his head one day and we all went, yeah, let's go with it. I like the project aspect of it because this industry is different. Um, pharmaceutical, industry, pharmaceutical industry, I'm sure, was very regimented. Blah, 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 blah. We're going to go set this up. Let's go here. And then you came in the, this industry and, and it's like the Wild West, right? Is that driving you crazy at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It drives me nuts. You know, in the past, I was used to, I would have some pretty good processes to go look at and improve, but they existed. The difference here is they don't exist. This isn't process improvement, it's process creation. And we're trying to create the supply chain and set up all of the different steps in the process and then on the fly trying to improve them and make them more efficient. So tons of things we did this past year were done for the first time ever by us, by a lot of people. And now we have so much learning going into this next grow season to say, what are we going to do differently and how can we cut out costs and cut out waste and make ourselves more efficient at this? Um, so all this all this information is public knowledge. So so uh, just to clarify for people, you guys have your hemp growing license and processing license under the Agri- Agricultural Development Services. Is that correct? If people yes. were to look it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'd just like to be, you know, clear clarification for everybody. Uh, so you guys uh, currently manage grows around New York State. 
um, but it, you guys are far reaching outside the state as well. Like kind of describe a little bit the, the supply chain you're kind of talking about. Sure. So in New York state, yeah, we worked with, um, we were in 13 different counties for our grows and they spanned about 200 miles. So we were all over the state and, and we planted different varieties all over the state to understand what worked well where, different soil types, different production methods, different soil prep methods, all of those things. And then we also have partners in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Oregon, and Wisconsin with grows. So that's helping us also to see regionally, you know, across the U.S., uh, what grows well, which genetics are the best, how, how can we build a supply chain that allows us to be multifaceted in different regions and have different phenotypes and everything else, um, just to really broaden our scale. Now that's a lot of data. I'm thinking in my head right now, how much good data that is that we don't have in the industry, because the industry is a little bit segmented. You, you don't have, uh, I think we're going to see more American hemp project type companies that are kind of coordinate, help coordinate the agricultural side of it because it doesn't look like farmers are going to be able to do that on their own. So I I loved your idea for that. And I'm sure with your agricultural development services, you guys saw that, saw that as a need in the industry, right? Yep. Um, Kind of a collaboration. Have you seen anybody? uh, All right. First of all, data. Well, how are you guys going to use the data? Okay. Cause we're talking about different States. So um, I know I've said this before on the podcast, different, Strains will grow differently in different states, in different climates. That's the reason why wine grows in different places. That's why Rieslings are real good in the Finger Lakes and whites and maybe not reds because it's not the climate for reds. I mean, uh, so Mother Nature plays a big deal on the cannabis plant as well. Um, so are you, what are you guys going to use for the data uh, on the different strains and what grew well and what didn't grow? And are you guys, do you have like one Excel spreadsheet you're putting all together or how are you, how are you doing it? Yeah, we have a lot of raw data still that that definitely needs to be analyzed. But one thing that, you know, I was in charge of since we started in the greenhouse last April was just keeping track of every single lot, every single variety, everything we um, fertilized with, even watering schedules, notes on, you know, how it grew, notes on germ rate, notes on, hey, this is feminized seed, but we're seeing a lot of males, notes on just what percentage of females to males we saw, um, all of that data. And then of course the yield at the end of the season. That is crucial people. I I want you to understand because this industry is so new and as you go into each state, processors don't quite know what the best efficient stuff is to go through the processing, whether it's CO2 or ethanol or water or however people are going to process. Um, mostly probably CO2 and ethanol, uh, but they don't know what strains and what CBD percentage is the best uh, because the people out West that are doing it very well aren't necessarily giving out that proprietary information because there's no none of these other collaborations are doing this. So I think it's a it's phenomenal what you're doing and the market you're going. What's the biggest challenges you're facing with the diversity that you guys are stretching out? Are you getting any pushback or are you creating more partnerships? Um. I would say the only pushback we feel at the moment is probably on the regulatory side. You're going over state lines. New York has a set of regulations that are in contrast to the USDA regulations that came out. Each state could have their own specific rules and regulations. If we're transporting biomass from state to state, do we have to notify all of the law enforcement on the way? That is a requirement we've heard in some places. What is the paperwork we need just to pass through that state? And what are the THC levels that are accepted? 
So I would say those are the biggest roadblocks to what we're trying to do on a national scale. But from a partnership standpoint, there's definitely a lot of people out there still closed off, but we have been successful at building a network, a close network of very trusted people. And that's what we're doing at the moment is understanding where those partnerships should be and building it. So this coming year, we can use all the information we've learned. We can find out who is going to extract which varieties and get the most yield and what what our plans are moving forward. Because what happened this year, we've mentioned it before, and, and now we have um, Courtney here who's very uniquely has is on the grow side and the processing side. Uh, growers are, are frustrated with processors right now in New York State, um, and I don't know if they quite understand. I think they're getting a better idea of, of their frustration isn't on the process themselves, but the game that's being played right now. Um, and so what's your challenge? So you're, you have both. So you have the grower and the processor side. So you can't be mad at one half of the company, the other half of the company, right? So, so from what your perspective, what did you see this year? Obviously, there's an overabundance of growth this year and not enough processors. Yeah. Uh, and you're both. So you, you have a perfect opportunity to tell people here what, what, how the situation is really happening. Yeah, that's exactly right. So obviously a lot of people came out and decided to grow CBD hemp this year. And a lot of people also were licensed as processors. And very few of those processors were able to get a license, get a plan in place, get approved for that plan, and then construct an entire processing facility in the matter of, I don't know, 12 months? 12 months, yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine why the processing side is a little behind the grow because the grow's on a set schedule. You know, October, November, your harvest is done and you have product that's ready to go. And so part of it, I think, is just that the processing is being built and it's not just completely up and running and functioning at its capacity that it has the ability to, which I think is very promising. Meanwhile, all these farms are holding on to a ton of biomass, so they're getting very nervous. And I think, you know, at first it was a selling of biomass game. How much can you give me per point per pound? And this is what I'm going to sell for. And last July, we were at $3.50 per point per pound. So if you have 10% CBD biomass, that's $35 a pound. And a lot of people based their economics around that number. Well, right now for large volume buys, it's 55 cents per point per pound. That's just because it's so prevalent out there, folks. It's 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 just supply and demand. Very simple. It's not about anything else. You go to any other industry, it's the same way. This is no different. So yep. it's just a learning experience. Really, probably what should have happened this year is the processor license should have been put out there. Allow the growers to, to produce, um, but all of them probably should have done it on a small scale if they didn't have an agreement with a processor in place to figure out next year who's going to be processing and demanding biomass and learning from an acre or two acres instead of 10 or 15 that they planned in the beginning. Um, but it sounds like you guys are very coordinated the way you did it. Um, so, so you also have um, processors outside the state that you're looking to take biomass as well, right? So I wanted to see what you think the national landscape is for the need for biomass right now. I, I think, honestly, because the supply chain is so new that it's still very regional. So New York State growers are suffering because there aren't that many processors running at full capacity in New York State compared to the grow. But then if you look over in Colorado, there's a ton of grow, but there's a ton of processing. And Oregon, there are so many processors that you can toll for a couple bucks a pound. 
where we're looking at 2030 here in New York. So those regional differences, I, I think, really do impact growers and impact the supply chain. And what we believe we can do by having a national network is say, what makes sense economically for you? and timing and what you want as an output and we have the processor for you and we can get it going and you can tap into our network which is going to give you economies of scale and and some efficiencies with transportation so right now i think it's still very regional but i do believe that more processors are coming up by the day and it's just a matter of when they catch up to the supply and, and the two things I think are the biggest challenges right now, but it's number one, processors finding equipment out there that's prepared to put into buildings, right? Because I think uh, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and number two is the banks lending money um, because that, that hasn't been happening. Um, have you seen those two issues yourselves? In uh, Are you planning on building a processing facility, number one, or, or thinking about it still? Uh, or, and number two, um, have you looked into the, like the, the equipment piece of it? Yeah, so number one, we are still thinking about it, but we haven't broke ground on any plans. So it's something we talk about and evaluate constantly. Um, We have some European partners who may have access to some equipment that we don't have access to here in the U.S. So that's, again, where we're trying to build these partnerships and relationships that can help us from all facets. Um, They helped us get an infrared dryer and a gas dryer. We have a high pressure baler and we have a decortication machine. So we have a lot of technology that has come out of that partnership. And I think it's going to help us to be a lot more flexible in the coming year. And why is that so so important? Um, I know why in the chain. Uh, what, What was one thing a lot of farmers didn't have access to that they needed this year? to prepare biomass. Yeah, so it's very interesting because a lot of farms grew what they would call flour, high value flour CBD hemp. And when you grow high value flour hemp, you really don't wanna send it through a dryer. That's going to over dry it and you're gonna lose um, some of your cannabinoids in that process because of the temperature. So the way to harvest and dry high value flour is to hand harvest it very labor intensive, and then to hang dry it under certain temperature and humidity conditions. And that is all extremely expensive. I can tell you from experience, we did 150 acres of harvest and drying that way. And um, it's a lot of work. You put a lot of money and investment into that. And I think what we, the farms looking into the harvest season this year didn't predict for is just how much labor that would be and the space and the expertise needed to get through that process. So I think a lot of them ended up probably paying for drying services, probably paying way too much. So there's a good reason to have a drying uh, solution in your network. And then some just had to leave it out in the field. They just were not prepared for the investment in harvest and drying and storage. And so having a high pressure baler allowed us to go around and help some farms and bale their hemp. And um, we bailed some of our hemp as well. So now we can send those through our dryers. That's a great point. Um, This crop, people don't realize, uh, is a little bit more labor intensive um, after the fact. It's not like corn, uh, beets. You know, strawberries, picking fields, this is a way different plant, trying to pull everything down. And 
processors don't want stocks. They don't want fan leaves. So, so then you really have to, to take that out. So, so you make the processors, um, it's more efficient going through their machines. So it's a catch 22 for the farmers. Yeah. So this is a big learning experience and you just painted it very well. I appreciate that. Um, equipment. So you're talking about Europe. Equipment is a shortage. There's not a lot because this industry is so new and so many people are popping up. So that's a big thing. Now, how have you guys come with banks? Have you guys been lucky with banks or, or have you had contacts with banks talking to them about financing? Yes, we have had contact. We have not had any success. Although there, you know, was a mandate at the end of the day, it comes down to a board of a lot of those banks to say, yes, we're comfortable with this or not. And we just haven't seen that yet. So, I mean, we have a great bank that we work with on the, you know, just transactional day to day. But as far as lending, no, we have not. So there you go, farmers. From a farmer processor perspective, this is still what we're all facing today, unfortunately. Uh, I did get news this week from Jason Klimek, who is a state Senate uh, candidate. Um here in New York State, you can look him up. Uh, but apparently in the, not in the governor's bill, but in the legislature's bill, they took on his tax uh, proposal idea, which will lower it down to, I believe, I believe it was 26%, but I don't remember off the top of my head. Wow. Uh, but he was in our, I, I met him this week, chatted with him, and they did take that on. So, so that legislation is still moving through right now. Um, and hopefully maybe right after this podcast gets, gets, uh, gets published, this, this whole rec licensing will be out on the table for everybody, but they are taking steps to try and reduce the tax burden. It looks like at least in the legislature bill, who That's knows great. if the governor's bill will come through, but, um, a little piece of update for us. Um, so I think that's a big thing. So the industry. So now we got to go to the second step of American Hemp Project is one side. Um, and now the American Hemp Project obviously wants to generate revenue, right? So you're going to want to do that through sales and through helping people with products. So, so where have you guys gone with products now? Yeah. So from a product standpoint, uh, we have a new brand, Lucid Garden, and we are going to be um, promoting and selling our line of CBD chewables very, very soon. Hot off the production Exciting line this week. stuff, yes. yes. Yep. And really the idea behind those was we are hemp growers at our heart, but we really want to transfer that all the way to the consumer. So how can we do that? We can get our hemp into a product that is going to help people. And so we went with Broad Spectrum for CBD chewables, so it's THC free. They're vegan, all natural, one gram of sugar. So the last thing I want someone doing is taking a piece of candy for health and wellness. It just doesn't make sense. And so what we are bringing to the market um, is what I think a product that tastes really good, really, really good, but also it's meant for health and wellness. So they're 10 milligram gummies, and you really can dose yourself. You can say, all right, what are my symptoms today? What, what is the amount of CBD? Because everyone's different and the effects it has on everyone is different. But I think what this product allows people to do is feel good about, you know, their, their health and wellness plan and what they're ingesting to feel better. A vegan chewable line. I love it. Yeah. And chewables is the name of it, right? Because you can't call them a candy or gummies or anything, right? That's all part of the game. Correct. Yep. Yep. So to be in line with all the New York state regulations, you have to follow the um, supplement guidelines and that's exactly what they are. So for processors in New York state, any products they produce have to say dietary supplements, which we're hoping the FDA is going to adopt that 
nationally and maybe follow suit what New York State is requiring now, but also probably makes it a little bit of a challenge distributing uh, over state lines too, right? So you, so we're in this big quandary still in the industry. Smokable, where you can sell smokable flour, the products, what the what are the packaging on the products? What do they have to say? Um, we really need the FDA and the USDA to stand USDA to stand up and say, all right, states, this is really what we're finding, and and let's allow. Um, producers of products to have a set baseline of this is what we need to have on all of our products, right? That's you guys, mm-hmm. are you frustrated by that process? Or are you waiting on the FDA just like everybody else, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So if, and when the federal government makes their ruling and the FDA um, either acknowledges or, or whatever their determination is, that's really going to change the landscape. It's going to open it up on a national scale. So right now, there's just all of these regulatory barriers to being able to function like a national brand. Um, the international market is very interesting. So the UK, for example, just released their guidelines. They're saying uh, 70 milligrams a day is the recommended serving size. And you have to submit an application as a novel food to be approved to sell it uh, later on this year. So their government has come up with serving size recommendations and a program to allow it in food and supplements and drinks. And I think they're really paving the way. They're ahead of us. They're ahead of the EU. And hopefully we follow suit. As usual, England always seems to be ahead. For some reason, their medical professional over there is always ahead of studies. Like They're not afraid to study things and see the the base of it. But also with uh, England, two caveats to that. Um, You can only sell CBD isolate in England right now. So they're not allowing brew it broader full spectrum right now, which I'm sure they're doing studies on that stuff and seeing how products can vary greatly with broad and full spectrum. So that's probably why they're a little bit weary about it. Uh, but number two, they are recommending that pregnant women don't take CBD um, for whatever reason. And this is based on studies that they did. So, so that's what came out of it. I actually would have to say from what I've learned in this last year, I would say 70 milligrams of CBD specific probably is a good cutoff. I mean, if you think about it for the gummies that, that, um, or excuse me, the chewables that your company's just produced Lucid Gar- for Lucid Garden line, um, that would be seven chewables in a day. If I took seven of those in a day, um, I'd be sleeping. Like I'm not functioning like, like CBD, a lot of cases and not every case, it depends how it's made, but a lot of cases, CBD in smaller doses can be more of a stimulant, um, where larger doses will, will, uh, induce a little bit of sleep. So 70 milligrams, you're putting someone out like, unless yeah. of course they have so much inflammation in their body that it's not affecting their, their drowsiness cause it's taking down so much information. But I think that's actually a pretty good metric. What do you think? What's your opinion? Yeah, I agree. Um, I was expecting something lower. I, I guess I was just expecting them to go ultra conservative. Me too. Yeah. But I appreciate it. And if they have studies to back it up, then that helps us all because there's not a lot out there and we're trying to build trust in this product. And we want to make sure that, you know, when we, when we say things that there's data behind them. So it it sounds like the UK did their research and. And and I can't wait till there's more studies for broad and full spectrum, because I I do believe that that cannabinoid level won't be maybe the max for total cannabinoids. Um, But I do like that they put the one cannabinoid limit on that. I, I hope that maybe they don't come with a metric on total cannabinoids for for a total amount, but that's going to take a lot more research behind it. Um, so some things we've talked about in the past, Courtney, and you guys being an agricultural side, first of all, do you have other products for the Lucid Garden line? Is there other ideas? I don't want to cut you short on <laughs> talking about the marketing side of your companies because it's so important. So is there anything else you want to tell people that you guys got coming up or what to look for or where to get your products, for instance? 
Yeah, so um, I would say we have a few things in research and development right now. So that will be for a future time. But uh, right now we are selling our chewables on our website, lucid-garden.com. We also are going to be in the NCBD supply stores around Rochester here very soon. So if you go in today, you won't see them, but they will be out soon. And as we announce more locations that we're in around town, and as we do pop-ups and shows around town, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and see where we're going to be. Uh, and it's all Lucid Garden, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody go on to my Facebook. I just liked her Lucid Garden today. So you guys can go through through there. If you don't want to look it up yourself, you can see it through my page as well. Um, this has been a great chat. We've gone over a lot of information. I appreciate you sharing as much of your life as you have. Uh, I think you're awesome. I love your energy. Oh, I cannot wait to see what kind of projects we do in the future together. Uh, and I'm really excited to help in any way of your business spreading and growing the supply chain across the country. Um, let's get to a little basic thing before we end. What would you pass on to people of your experience with cannabinoids, yay or nay, and what you would tell people maybe that um, are questioning whether to bring cannabinoids in their life, um, maybe why you think they, they should at least consider it? What I've seen is that um, cannabinoids, specifically CBD, work differently for everyone. And going into this um, last January, I barely even understood its impact. And over the past year, what I found is I try products that don't work for me uh, all the time. And sometimes you have to give it some time, be open-minded, or just realize that for some reason that's not one that is working well with my endocannabinoid system. And I think as you try more things, um, always ask for a COA, a lab analysis, a lab report. That's what's going to make you feel secure that this is a safe product and has in it what it says it has, number one. And number two, just, just give it a try, you know, dose yourself very lightly and um, it's just, you know, monitor how you feel. So the whole thing is we don't know yet. We can't make medical claims or anything like that, but all of the experiences I hear is that, you know, CBD has allowed people to either feel better in a way they hadn't before or replace a different non-botanical method that they were using to treat themselves. Amen. You said it well. Thanks. Yeah. Folks, we found this woman is phenomenal. Athlete, wife, entrepreneur now, pharmaceutical rep, has a very good take on life. Uh, We appreciate having her in the studio to give us so much information. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for the Lean Six Sigma stuff. I hope people really take that serious. Uh, And I just want to end this episode on a serious note. Um, Sports is gone. Our daily distractions are are down to almost one thing right now. So let's take advantage. Let's, Let's spend time with our families. Spend time with your kids. Let's get off the digital stuff. Uh, take some walks, get out in the woods. Let's do some things we've never, haven't done in a long time because our lives are so cluttered after six o'clock with things we think we need to do to to get to where we need to be. Um, let's take this time and really enjoy our families and get close and make sure that when we get through all this challenge that we're facing right now, that uh, we are a better society because of it. So that's, that's how I'm going to close today's episode. Thank you, everybody. Get out in the woods and enjoy. Enjoy.